Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is Duray, and welcome to Posse of the People. This week, it's me, Sam, Kaya, and DR, as usual, talking about the underrepresented stories in the news that you should know. And then I have a quick check-in with Netta, talking about everything that's happening nationwide with the protests. And then I sit down and talk to Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderberg to discuss their new book about the Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force, which, if you didn't hear about, is fascinating and wild and all true. My advice for this week is to write it down. Not necessarily because writing in and of itself is some like magical process, even though it is, but because sometimes having the clarity of language is also a clarity of thought. So there have been a lot of things where I'm like, oh, I think this and And the moment that I actually have to like find the words for it and put it down into a sentence, I'm like, wow, this is actually what I believe, or this is what I don't believe, or this is what I meant to say, or this is how I... And that groundedness in knowing what your intent is or like why you reached a certain point or how you reached it is important. So I say write it down as a way to ground yourself, ground the ideas and ground the work. Let's go. Hello, 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 family. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Diara Ballinger at Diara Ballinger on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kaya Henderson, at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm DeRay, at DIY on Twitter. Well, family, we are coming to you again after a, a, a really hard, challenging loss. It seems week to week we go with trying to remain optimistic. We all are. We're all, you know, still fighting the good fight. But I think there are losses, even though while we expected them, it's still very hard to digest and process. And obviously I'm talking about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who we lost this week, who needs really no introduction, no summary. We all know who she, who the great RBG is. But I think as we are rolling closer to the election um, and then understanding just the politics and the mechanics of a potential justice replacing her, that's the nominee of Trump, I think is all obviously very terrifying. I think what we need to be mindful of is the facts. Senate confirmation processes are long and sometimes challenging, to say the least. Um, But there's also an institutional process that regardless of what happens, we hope um, and we assume, I assume, as someone that's a part of the legal profession, that uh, it will be adhered to. So You know, I think we just wanted to kind of open it up and talk about what this all means, um, what it could mean for the country, what it could mean for um, the Supreme Court, what it can mean for the elections that are some 40, I think we're at 40 days now, less than 40 days away. Um, But yeah, what are y'all thinking? What are are y'all's reactions to the loss of RBG? 
obviously it is beyond sad that RBG died. It is frightening that Trump might be able to even recommend anybody, let alone whether they get voted on. But I will say I hadn't even thought about the strategy of just expanding the size of the court. I feel like I just missed that in social studies. I didn't realize that the number of justices wasn't set by the Constitution and that Congress can do it. I'm like, go ahead, let us, you know what, if he gets this person in, when we get everything back, the court going to be 25 people and we going to put... <laughs> A whole slew of people in there for life, you know. Like I, I didn't even think about that strategy. And I'll say that the um, that we haven't seen the Dems really fight this administration as vociferously as he is fighting all us. Uh, and if this is the moment that they fight, like I'm ready for it. Like let this be the thing that y'all are willing to throw down about because he's going to appoint a 40 year old white woman for sure, like a 45 somebody that is going to be on this court till our kids have kids. And uh, I'm ready for the fight. But I hadn't even understood that as an option until RBG passed away. And then I was reading all this stuff about it. And I was like, oh, we can definitely expand the size of the court. And let's be clear, the right would do this to us in a heartbeat. I mean, which is not a reason to do it, but it is a reminder that, like, we don't have to just live with what we got because it's always been this way. I will say on Friday night, I was at happy hour with some friends and got the alert on my phone and literally, like, was just crestfallen. Like it was staggering. I thought we had wrapped this lady in saran wrap and were like taking close care of her. Um, I I have to say, I'm just thankful for all of the strides that she has made on behalf of America, right? Not just women, not just whatever, on behalf of America. I'm I'm with DeRay. If this catalyzes the fight, geez, Louise, well then let's rumble. I don't think I've seen the kind of fight yet that I think we need going into this election. And I think we need to, one, do everything that we can to stop this from moving forward. But I think we also need to do whatever we can post-election to literally change the rules of the game. And I think um, this is what the Republicans have been doing. And I do think that if it engages and energizes um, the Democrats to fight a different kind of fight, then that would be good for us all uh, that believe in this country, that believe in democracy. I'm here in D.C. this week, and I went out to the Supreme Court on Friday night, and there were a gazillion people out on the steps of the court, and they've been there every day paying respects to Justice Ginsburg. And it, you know, those are the times where I feel most American. I actually, a friend had given me an American flag, and I can't tell you when I ever, I, I, don't, I don't think I own a, a flag anything, um, but here I was wrapped in this flag on the steps of the Supreme Court feeling more American than I've felt in a really long time because there were so many people out there who were honoring her legacy and her memory and prepared to do whatever it takes to preserve it. So let's get ready to rumble. So uh, the only thing I'll add is I think what the current situation does is it puts a lot of focus on the Senate. Um, I think up until now, so much of the focus, I mean, rightly so, has been on like who is the occupant of the White House uh, next year and for the next four years. And I think now what is clear is that if we don't win the Senate, 
the situation is still not going to look good for us, um, that we are going to have a court that is rigged and uh, skewed in favor of Republicans, is striking down everything from you know Roe v. Wade to the ACA and blocking anything even at the state level that might be progressive and hopeful. The Senate is critical. The map of the Senate is one uh, that we should be paying attention to, right? Thinking about Mississippi uh, with Mike Espy running in a place where, you know, we're talking about a state with the uh, largest black population uh, as a percentage of of the total population of the state, Um, a state that uh, the, in the polling is within a few points, um, which is sort of unheard of. Places like not only Mississippi, but we're also thinking about even Kentucky, uh, thinking about Colorado, thinking about states where that can actually decide the Senate map um, and decide who controls the Senate, because I think that we have to aim for flipping the Senate as a goal um, with the understanding that if we can flip the Senate, um, that will put so many different things in play in terms of legislation, in terms of court appointments um, for the next administration. Um, so so I hope that this can remind folks of how important it is to turn out. Um, even if you are in a state that may not be a uh, quote unquote battleground state for the presidency, but if you are in Mississippi, you are in a battleground state for the Senate. Um, and so, you know, again, that there's a, a reason to vote for everybody um, and it's gonna take all of us turning out, all of us um, getting engaged. Like right now, in many places, you can start to vote early. You can request your vote by mail ballot um, and from now until the election uh, to make sure that next year we can begin the work of actually uh, improving and addressing some of the damage that's been caused over the past four years um, and then building a future that we deserve. I think that's absolutely right, Sam. And, I, you know, just even taking it back to 2016, when we, you know, still had a Republican controlled Senate and, you know, Merrick Garland not being able to push through as Obama's choice for the Supreme Court. I mean, and then even in that period of time, Mitch McConnell said, you know, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Obviously, he's not following through to <laughs> to those words from 2016. And so, you know, just to your point around how important the Senate is right now, they're at a majority 53 to 47, but hoping that we can in places like Mississippi and places like South Carolina with Jamie Harrison, we can really start to build on a majority in the Senate or get as close as we can. So, With that, still keeping on the Supreme Court discussion, I'm going to kick off the news. So my news this week, albeit not really news because we don't know a lot about it. However, um, Joe Biden has kind of been obviously as a response to Justice Ginsburg passing, um, kind of this revisiting this discussion around Joe Biden saying that he's committed to putting a black woman on the Supreme Court. Now, we don't know the list of names, but so far his track record's not bad. With Kamala. So we know he at least is sticking to it somewhat. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I just thought it was an interesting conversation. And just obviously being in my feelings, being in my fifis around um, Justice Ginsburg and also thinking about all the incredible black folks that have been a part of the legal profession. People like Polly Murray, for example. And if you all don't know about Polly Murray, you should look her up. But Polly Murray, because of her arguments in, a, in an article that she wrote while she was a student at Howard Law, was actually used by Thurgood Marshall and Brown versus Board of Education. So just understanding the legacy of black folks, black women in particular, when it comes to um, the spirit and the, the evolution of law and protecting law and protecting people in this country. I just thought this was interesting. And I think it made me... 
I don't know if it made me feel better, but I think it did kind of take me to a place where I started to really think about how important the legal system is, how important it is to have black lawyers. I don't know if it's true today, and, and Duran, Sam, you all know better than me, but I know there was a time when there were no black attorneys in Ferguson at all. Um, and so understanding that dynamic, understanding the disparities of both what it means to, you know, this conversation we were having about black doctors and how black babies survive more or have a better chance of living with a black doctor as opposed to a white doctor, thinking about is if that's the same for you know, somebody who's been accused of a crime and having a black attorney versus a white attorney. So I don't know, I think all of this kind of, this particular article and obviously thinking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg just really got me thinking about the importance of black folks in the legal profession. I don't even know if I could wrap my mind around a black woman Supreme Court justice. I mean, I think if that happened, I think I'd be fine forever. Like I'd be like, okay, I'm all good. So I don't know, just putting that out there for y'all, like, would love your reaction. But I think, um, you know, again, understanding the importance of black lawyers and black law schools, Howard, Southern, FAM, UDC, like, you know, these institutions that pump out these incredible black attorneys and like how important they are and how much support that they need. I read this article and it made me really wonder from a strategy perspective, how and whether it benefits Biden to say who he's going to pick for the Supreme Court at this particular point. I wonder because I think that there's an opportunity. In fact, if you're going to name names and say who you're going to pick for what, then it would seem to me that you could name a lot of names and you could begin to introduce your cabinet as an effort to bring lots of different constituencies Uh, in support of the campaign. And so I wondered why in this particular case you would say, why Biden would say he would name an African-American woman when we just had a big African-American woman pick in the vice presidency and whether that actually, I wonder how much impact that will have to even further solidify the black vote or if there isn't an opportunity to either with your Supreme Court pick or with other cabinet picks to um, signal to other constituencies that uh, there are leadership opportunities um, mm-hmm. that you are targeting. So I'm, I'm rooting for everybody black, for sure. Um, and so having an African-American woman on the Supreme Court would make me incredibly proud. I really just, uh, um, it makes me wonder from a strategy perspective what he's trying to accomplish. One of the things floating around in the wake of Justice Ginsburg's death has been a thing that I've seen on social media that talks about all of the things that that she's done for women, the right to sign a mortgage without a man, the right to have a bank account without a male co-signer, the right for women to be pregnant and have kids and work. And at a time where we are celebrating all of these strides that she helped bring together for women, women are in an incredibly precarious situation as a result of COVID-19 and this economy. In fact, Politico has an article uh, called Crashing Down, How the Child Care Crisis is Magnifying Racial Disparities. And it shows us that 93% of child care workers in the United States are women. 45% of those are Black, Asian, or Latino. And that half of child care businesses are minority-owned. 
as you can imagine, in this global pandemic, the collapse of the childcare industry is hitting women of color the hardest. In fact, uh, at the height of the pandemic, 60% of childcare programs around the country had closed, and one third of childcare workers had lost their jobs. Um, many of those who remained open were only able to remain open because states had dedicated childcare funding provided in the CARES Act, but that money is running out quickly. And so it's estimated that two fifths of childcare providers will shut their doors for good if there is not a federal infusion of funding, and it doesn't look like that is going to happen. If you zoom out a little bit, Reuters did a piece called Retirements, Layoffs, and Labor Force Flight May Leave Scars on the U.S. Economy. And according to detailed analysis of jobs data, what the labor economists and the Reuters folks have have found is that women are not reengaging in the job market. In fact, the economic growth of the whole entire country has slowed because of childcare issues. And so uh, while there's a crisis in the childcare sector that is hitting women and women of color incredibly disproportionately, the United States economy, the economic drag is falling heavily on two groups, women and, and older workers. In fact, uh, women previously accounted for 47% of the workforce but they make up 54% of the people who have left the workforce in the pandemic, most of them leaving the labor force in the early months because of the need to tend to family responsibilities. And in fact, um, the country can't grow if women are not returning to the workforce and if the childcare sector um, both for women and for everybody else, frankly, um, doesn't have the chance to rebound. And so yet again, in the same way that we know that this pandemic has hit our most vulnerable communities and our most vulnerable demographics, women and women of color specifically, uh, as they're represented in the childcare industry, and even more broadly, um, are taking it on the chin, and we've got to figure out how to fix that. So Kyle, I didn't realize that the 2007-2009 recession was mostly things like construction, manufacturing, those are the hardest hit. And you're right, in a moment like this, the service industry is hit in a in a wild way. And you know, we've been talking a lot on the past like four or five episodes about that the real repercussions of coronavirus for the economy have not been felt. That this is like the first wave. But you're right. Like when when will babysitters and housekeepers and the people that work at hotels and like there's gonna be that whole group that is dependent on crowds like that is like the you you either need crowds or you need to come into people's homes and go out of people's homes like I even think about I had to get the air conditioner fixed recently and like that even that service just like that is a thing that is allowed to happen now in a way that it was harder to schedule before you know so it will be interesting to see what the bounce act looks like and if the government actually steps up, you know, the federal government has a budget deadline soon and Congress will have to come back and figure it out. And it's like people really are making a way out of no way. And like people have done it for this whole coronavirus. But I don't know how long that lasts, especially when you think about the East Coast, when it's like winter's coming, you know, people will be stuck in the house for real. Like not like I'm choosing to be in the house, but you will be stuck with nowhere to go, how do you do food pickup in a blizzard? I don't know, right? It's like all this stuff. I am, I am worried about this coming with without a plan, especially for the East Coast. Like when the season changes, uh, what that looks like, I don't know. 
So uh, my news is uh, related to how we sort of got here, right? Thinking about economic inequality and how it has taken off um, over the past several decades. A new working paper has just been released by the Rand Corporation, which tries to answer the question, how much money um, is actually being redistributed in society? And in which direction is that redistribution happening? So we've heard a lot about socialism and uh, redistribution as this scare tactic or talking point that we hear oftentimes from Republicans uh, to describe any effort to advance policies that would create a more equitable economy and society. What this study does um, is it actually looks at the amount of money redistributed in the opposite direction um, from uh, low-income and middle-income folks to the very top of the income bracket. And what they find is that uh, during the 1940s through about 1974, um, there was a period where the distance between the top earners and the bottom earners um, was more equitable than it has been since. Um, and since 1975, through the current moment, um, what we've seen is economic inequality skyrocket. Um, this is a period of tax cuts and deregulation, uh, neoliberalism, pushing policies that sought to unravel and dismantle some of the gains that we saw uh, post-World War II and post-Civil Rights Movement. So what this working paper has done is actually quantified the amount of money that has been redistributed, uh, and their estimate is about $50 trillion um, has been redistributed from the bottom of the income bracket to the top, and that American workers in the bottom 90% of society um, would all be making substantially more money and in income if not for uh, that redistribution and exploitation. So the, the level of extreme inequality in American society um, is producing an outcome that we now have a actual dollar figure associated with, um, and it is a scale at which is just mind-boggling. So like $50 trillion is an amount that like I didn't even know like existed. It is like this impossible amount of money, and yet um, we're talking about a substantial amount when you break that down for the individual worker. And this also cuts across race and gender. Uh, it cuts across like, rural and urban areas. Like Basically, everybody who is not in the top earners uh, has lost out because of the expansion in inequality since uh, the 1970s. So I wanted to talk about, about this study in particular. I think we hear a lot about and have experienced this inequality in our lives, um, but this like total figure uh, attempting to quantify it is something that is relatively new, and $50 trillion is like an obscene amount of money that even I wasn't expecting. Um, so we, I feel like we talk about school opening, closing at some point, you know, and um, I guess I'll leave it for somebody else to talk about New York City that made a big deal about all these openings, and who knows if that actually happened or not. But I want to talk about dental care for students. So what does it mean that we built a public education system that really is the only neighborhood resource in so many places? Like it becomes a hub, whether the building itself is just a resource. So I think about Baltimore, we looked at the data and it was there was one school within every five miles when we when we did our analysis. So like the schools in Baltimore were more equitably distributed than almost anything else in the city of Baltimore, that there were schools in every neighborhood, regardless of income, and they were like put in really cool places. And this article in the New York Times is about what happens when schools are closed, and that actually became one of the most regular avenues for dental visits uh, in America. So it talks about how closures have suspended regular dental health visits uh, in schools from Oregon to New York State. 
and all across the country, they talk about this one dental hygienist uh, who is the director of a school-based dental program at Hudson Headwaters Health Network in New York. They said that they used to treat 2,000 to 2,500 children near the Adirondack Mountains every year since the program began, and like there is no school anymore, right? So you think about the hygienist, and I remember being a teacher. I remember working at Human Capital. Uh, what it meant that like there'd be the dentist like vans, the dentist buses, or like that same thing with eye care. Like school was on the front line of figuring out if kids had vision problems because they they would be in class, and then all of a sudden like you're like, can you see? And we had a whole process for making sure that they got their eyes tested. Baltimore City Public Schools actually had a collaboration with Warby Parker so kids could get their glasses, and it was so interesting. I was talking to one of the co-founders of Warby Parker, and he was saying that they would actually give kids two pair of glasses. And I was like, why would you give them two? And he's like, because we were like testing out the effect of this at scale, right, across the district. And we gave them one pair of glasses that they kept in the classroom Mm -hmm. and then one pair of glasses that they took with them. I'm like, y'all done planned this. But it was like, how do you get those resources otherwise? And you didn't need health insurance to take advantage of the dentist. You didn't need health insurance to get your eyes checked. Like there was a whole apparatus that we wrapped around kids that was rooted in the school building. And what happens now when the building is closed? Again, I think that we are just in the early stages of figuring out what we owe these young people because we haven't quite planned far enough ahead. Don't even get me started. I mean, I I say all the time that schools are the stage on which all of society's problems show up, right? And so healthcare issues show up, environmental issues show up you know, violence at home issues show up and schools have to be responsible for all of this stuff where we don't actually even have the appropriate resources to ensure that teaching and learning happens. But thankfully, through partnerships, we're able to attend to kids' health needs and whatnot. Yes, in this global pandemic, things like dental care and vision care and so many other services for kids are going by the wayside. It is 2020. And to think about kids dying of dental abscesses, which still happens, is astounding. But it happens less because kids get checked in schools. All of these things, vision, whatever. And so many communities have actually leveraged these kinds of partnerships. I think about the Strive Network or the work that has been done in Cincinnati to co-locate these really important services in school buildings. Um, we are, we're not scratching the surface. There's an educational crisis happening because of school closures. There are healthcare crises happening because of school closures. There is a nutrition and hunger crisis happening because of school closures. And we will reckon with this. We, again, I mean, I, I feel like we are a broken record. We keep on saying we eyes have not yet seen, right, um, what we are going to um, suffer as a result of of this pandemic and all of these decisions that we're making. But again, these are choices that that we are making uh, and they will have a much more significant impact and effect than what it seems on the front end. I, I don't even know where to begin. I think part of it is you hear something like this in terms of, and you know, y'all will see this article when you read it for yourselves, but how, you know, kids that were in school who couldn't pay attention because that's how much pain they were in and so embarrassed about the fact that they hadn't been to the dentist. And so I think, one, all these things break my heart, obviously, but then I think, what do we do about it? And I think the only thing we really can do, or one of the things that I think to do, 
is to really be involved in these local elections and obviously the national elections, but like you just got to pay attention and understand what's happening. Um, and the things that, you know, some elected officials and schools are responsible for, but also just like, again, our accountability as a society, like you are paying taxes. You need to understand how these systems are working. One, because we have a contract with one another, to Kaya's point earlier. How are we treating one another? Like, what are we doing? I feel like at some point it's like, how much are we going to tolerate? How much are we going to actually be complicit in? I don't know. I just got to say Got to do better. We just got to do better. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people is coming. Today is National Voter Registration Day. Woo-woo. Y'all, we got to vote. Vote, 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 vote. Uh, if you've been listening to our show, you're probably already registered to vote. But guess what? Now's a great time to double check that you're still registered at votesaveamerica.com slash verify. This is especially important if you've moved since the last election, changed your name, or if you haven't voted in a while. Once you've checked yourself, make sure your friends and your family have verified their registration as well. Then head to votesaveamerica.com slash everylastvote for volunteer opportunities to get new voters registered and to donate to organizations helping get registration info to people in key places ahead of their deadlines. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Pot Save America is brought to you by Helix. If you're looking for better sleep, you need to upgrade your mattress with Helix. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released and high-end Helix Elite Collection, Mm. a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids, which Charlie has. Charlie has a Helix mattress now. 
just for kids, in his uh, race car bed. Very nice. excited, very happy about it. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and uh, it ships straight to your door free of charge. They even offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. If you're a side sleeper, you can choose a model with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief. There are also models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. Plus, check out enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating while you sleep. It's no wonder Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. And you, you've loved your Helix mattress. I love I got a Don Lux. There you go. And there it's you go. great. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked. That's helixsleep.com slash crooked. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. And nada, 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 let us know what is going on around the country. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's me, Netta, and thanks so much for tuning back in. Today is my mother's 51st birthday and her sixth heavenly birthday. I lost her in January 2014 after her long fight with lupus. Before we get to the news, I want to take time to honor her memory and share a few things. My mother was just that, my mother. I was blessed to have her with me for 24 years of my life, and I appreciate many of the lessons that she taught me, or actually just made me learn. (laughs) Consequences and being accountable for my actions were concepts I was introduced to early. She was a Virgo after all. (laughs) And my mother was many things. She was a talented artist. I still have not met someone whose mind shapes stories through colors the way that hers did. It was beautiful. She was also a savvy business owner who had a beauty salon for years. I'm grateful to have grown up as a shop kid. I really did love that place. It was ours. After long days of being surrounded by a sea of whiteness that was often covertly hostile to my black existence, the shop was a daily refuge and recharge space for my spirit. At the shop, I got the opportunity to be in the presence of smart black women from all walks of life. I heard them talk about business, their business, family, relationships, finances, and all these other things that make up this wild ride we call life. I got more gems at the shop than I did at the schoolhouse, if you ask me. And for that, I'm always grateful to my mother and my grandparents for providing this little black girl a safe space to explore all kind of feelings and ideas and conversations at the shop. So happy birthday, Ma. The last week has been like an avalanche of news, so let's get to it. In the era of misinformation and deepfakes, blackfishing is once again making the rounds in the press. A University of Wisconsin-Madison graduate resigned from a teaching position after revealing that they lied about their race. C.V. Vatolo Haddad pretended to be Black and Latinx, failed to correct people's assumptions about their ethnicity, and declined to not identify as Black when asked by others. C.V. is actually of Southern Italian and Sicilian ancestry. They also lost a job at the University of Fresno as a result of this black fishing expose. This is all on the heels of George Washington University professor Jessica Krug, who resigned from her professional position at the university for black fishing just a couple of weeks ago. Y'all, I'm not quite sure what to say about all of this. While I am happy that these two imposters are suffering some sort of long overdue consequences for their actions, I still cannot help but feel that everybody is able to benefit from blackness except actual black people. 
The fight for accountability and the murder of Breonna Taylor continues. The city of Louisville settled with the Taylor family for $12 million, a decision that the family attorney Benjamin Crump called historic. But if you think the game is over, think again. After the settlement was announced, Tamika Palmer, Brianna's mother, said, It is time to move forward with the criminal charges because she deserves that and much more. And I agree with you, Ms. Palmer. Sadly, there is no justice for Brianna. Because real justice for Brianna would mean that we would never even know her name in this way because she would still be with us. $12 million and a bevy of police reforms will allow her family to live a comfortable existence. But none of that will bring her back. So really, how comfortable is it? And that's the hard part. I dream of a day where we can make the necessary policing reforms or overhauls without the need for people to die as a catalyst. But until then, I join the calls from everyone else. Arrest the cops who murdered Breonna Taylor. And protests against police violence are ongoing all over the country, still. And true to form, rising up against police violence is met with more police violence. On September 19th, New York City police officers attacked peaceful protesters at an abolished ICE rally. Yes, that ICE. The ones who were performing forced hysterectomies on women in its facilities. That is the ICE that the NYPD is propping up and protecting. At this point, it's a stretch to say that fascism is coming to America. It is here. It's here. The only question is how many more people and groups they have to come for before the silent begin to speak. And with that, I'll talk to you all next week. Peace. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. In 2017, the federal government had to step in and arrest a group of Baltimore police officers known as the Gun Trace Task Force. The GTTF were a group of detectives carrying out every crime imaginable, and following their arrest, the stories about the rest of the department just kept getting worse and worse. Today, I'm talking to Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderberg, whose new book, I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad, dives into the entire sordid story of the Gun Trace Task Force, my hometown, Baltimore. Let's go. Baynard and Brandon, thanks so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
So I'm interested uh, in digging into the book and the case and the whole moment. Uh, one of the things that's so interesting about the GTTF is that it seems to not have led to anything substantive happening in the city, which is so wild. But can you just give us a, a primer on uh, what happened and why you put it in a book? Sure. Um, you know, what we, the, the Gun Trace Task Force was a plainclothes police squad in Baltimore City that were, you know, mainly tasked with getting guns off the street by any means necessary, essentially. And um, in the process of doing that, they began robbing people, stealing drugs, dealing drugs, routinely violating people's rights, and also stealing a ton of overtime, which was very easy for them to do. And they really took advantage of the post-uprising Baltimore moment where homicides were up and there was a real concern about having another riot, basically. And they really took advantage of that and used that kind of uh, rhetoric to go even crazier and wilder on the city. And then um, Baynard usually picks up here and kind of talks about the uh, co-conspirators that these guys were also working with that were not cops. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I think that, that nothing really happened is that they weren't going after these guys in the first place. They happened to stumble upon it when they were doing the same thing that federal agents usually do. They were trying to arrest black people that they thought were selling drugs to white people. And so they got a wire on a phone. Uh, that guy ended up, Antonio Shropshire, ended up calling uh, Moma Dugando, who worked in the Baltimore Police Department and the Gun Trace Task Force. So they got a, a tap on Gondo's phone. Then they found out that they were robbing people nightly. The Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice had its office right next door to the Gun Trace Task Force while this was going on, and they didn't get a whiff of it at all. And so it was really just, and in fact, they, the only reason that Leo Wise, the AUSA, was really uh, interested in this drug case in the first place was wanting to be able to get murder charges for people who sold uh, drugs that caused people to overdose. So it's been sometimes cast as this thing of like, you know, the feds come in on a white horse and clean up dirty Baltimore city, but that's not really the way it went. So it's not surprising that, that nothing is, has really changed. And Shropshire got as much time as Jenkins got, 25 years. And everyone who testified at his trial against him, you know, the text messages were all like, thank you. Uh, you know, as people who wanted dope and he supplied them with dope. Whereas Jenkins was trying to break up people's marriages, uh, using ruses to break up people's marriages so they couldn't even hire a lawyer and stuff, just crazy harm and damage done to the community. Can you all zoom out a little bit and just like, tell us uh, the players, tell us the scope, tell us the numbers of people involved. Like for, you know, one of the things that I realized, especially dealing with policing issues across the country is that like, I know about the GTTF because like Baltimore's home, I'm from Baltimore, you know, like, but I realized that a lot of people across the country, this did not become like a breaking news story across the country that people reference, which is still so interesting to me. So can you like lay the foundation for people so they understand sort of like scope, numbers, scale, players? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that's hard about the scope is people wanted GTTF to be like this gang. The, the initials became like BGF in Baltimore, the Black Gorilla family, it became this shorthand. But really most of the crimes committed by there were seven officers indicted in the first uh, round of indictments on March 1st, 2017, and all seven of them had been committing crimes in different units. So part of the issue is that uh, their crimes had gone back to people have been charged now as early as 2009, uh, major charges of planting heroin and drugs on people in 2010, going all the way up until the time of the indictment. So when they came together, this group that was initially indicted, it was like a 
super group of, of grimy cops that had all been doing dirt elsewhere and came into the same unit for this sort of spectacular and messy crime spree in the summer of 2016. And that was Wayne Jenkins was the sergeant and really the mastermind of that. He was a white guy from the county, a drug cop, had made his name as a drug cop, being able to flip people. Uh, you know, he had a reputation from going from getting a bag on the street to having the guy with the raw the next day or something. He could really work. So they put him in charge of this unit to try to do that with guns. As the numbers had gone down, the murders were going up and arrests and clearances were going down in the period of 2015. They gave him a longer leash to do whatever he wanted. And he, that's when he took over the Gun Trace Task Force. In it already were uh, Momadou Gondo, who I mentioned already, that was working with a drug crew uh, in Northeast Baltimore, selling heroin. They had been selling heroin, a lot of heroin in Hartford County or to people in Hartford County. And those cops were getting a wind of that. Jamel Rayom was Gondo's partner. He had three shootings back in 09 on uh, the trial. It came up that he said he shot one guy because he just didn't want to chase him. Um, and those were the sort of three most ambitious criminals. And then there was Daniel Hersel, who was a notorious cop in Baltimore who had $250,000 in settlements uh, that the department had paid out by 2015. And there were several other, uh, three other cops that were in Jenkins squad that were less involved, but certainly criminally involved. And that was the initial round of people. And then Brandon, maybe you want to jump in with some of the scope of what's happened since those guys all got indicted. Right. Yeah. So you have Jenkins as the mastermind of this crew on the sort of side of that you have, as Maynard mentioned, you have Mobidou Gondo, who's working with a heroin dealing crew. Jamel Ram also ended up dealing drugs with a former Baltimore cop who was working in Philly. Um, and then also Jenkins himself had a bail bondsman and cocaine dealer named Donnie Stepp that he was pushing off stolen drugs to. So within this squad of seven, you also have at least three of them are working directly with different drug organizations or drug dealers. And then on top of that, this sort of uh, over the top drug dealing they're doing. They're also constantly kind of arresting people, sometimes planning evidence, often unconstitutionally arresting people. And those impacts are still ongoing, but, you know, over a thousand people have been sort of flagged as cases that need to be dropped. There's been officers flagged on having integrity issues. Um, the Office of the Public Defender in Baltimore continues to push and say that closer to 10 or 20,000 people that have probably been affected by this. I mean, one way to think of it would be that, so you start with just the seven cops who've all been in the department for somewhere between 10 years or more. And you start thinking of every single arrest they do together or with other officers now has to be questioned. So that was sort of the big question for lawyers once this indictment happened is how do we possibly even try to get to the bottom of that? And that's still happening. In addition, settlements have started to come out. A man named Ivan Potts got a settlement for uh, $400,000. A gentleman, um, the family of another man, William James, who is mentioned in the book, his family got $200,000. And then early this month, there was a burst of um, settlements, about a dozen or so that dropped on a Friday right before uh, right before Labor Day, which may or may not have been a coincidence. And that was some, a lot of people have been robbed by these guys or had um, other issues with them and included a family, uh, the Hamiltons that are in the book that uh, were sort of kidnapped, were never charged with a crime, but were taken to their house and had about $20,000 stolen from them. So the repercussions even into 2020, into 2021 continue. And there has been, since those initial seven indictments, eight other people have been federally charged. And we keep, we understand the investigation is ongoing. So, so far about 15 cops have been 
roped into it. Another dozen or so are mentioned that haven't been in trouble or they've just left the department. And um, I think you'll see more and more settlements. So their reign of terror, which as Bannard's head stretches back at least a decade or so, also continues to sort of have these reverberations within the legal community and the city who it's still kind of mentioned in the city as like evidence of what Baltimoreans have been saying about police for decades that they do these things. Now the federal government charged people with the kind of things people have been saying the cops do. Now, Baynard, you talked about that this was not the result of some incredible internal affairs investigation by the Baltimore City Police Department. Can you just remind us how this happened? Like, was it a uh, was it a whistleblower for people? Was it a was this a mistake and and somebody like stumbled across the police being bad? Uh, and then after you do that, can either one of you talk about why? Do you think the city leadership has been silent? Like when I think about uh, when I think about the only response we've seen is like Bill Ferguson fought uh, Pew really hard. I don't know if you like he fought her really hard on getting that state commission, which is like you know not even a, an amazing thing, but it is literally the only thing that seems to have resulted. And he was really intense about that, given his role at the state house. Like, why have the city leadership been? almost silent about what is arguably the biggest corruption scandal in the history of the police department, at least in a generation. Yeah, so we were really skeptical of the official story of the of the way that the GTTF was brought down. And so we, we sidelined it a little bit in the book because some things didn't make sense. So I'll walk through it. And, uh, you know, what we did instead was the people who had been really calling this out for years are defense attorneys. You know, they're the ones who know what dirty cops are doing, public defenders particularly, because they work with the most vulnerable. But And there were just cases and cases of judges and prosecutors ignoring what they could have seen. So we can talk more about that. But eventually the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI get on to these officers. And it's a really convoluted story that involves, on the one hand, a Hartford County deputy, a white sheriff's deputy investigating uh, black drug dealers in Baltimore, finding out that they're talking with a member of the Baltimore Police Department and getting a warrant. But simultaneously, somehow, the other guy that they get a warrant to uh, arrest, the second drug dealer they're on uh, in Northeast Baltimore, when they go to raid his house, they find out that he's gone. He went to a hotel instead. They It looks like he'd had a home invasion at his house. They somehow get suspicious about that. When they pull their own tracker off his car, they find another tracker on the car that belonged to a member of the Baltimore Police Department. Uh, the only member of the GTTF that wasn't indicted, John Cluel. So, you know, kind of people say, oh, he was a Boy Scout, but he was using illegal trackers at the very least that he lent to Gondo <laughs> and Rayum. They did home invade uh, this guy's house. They knew through Gondo's friend, Kyle Wells, that this guy had a, uh, they thought he had a bunch of money in the house. It turned out he had a bunch of drugs. They kicked in the door when they thought he was gone. His girlfriend was there. They pointed a gun at her, they stole the money, and they left. So somehow these two things come together, this wiretap with them finding this tracker, and they say, hey, we're going to get on BPD. And they they thought Wayne Jenkins was the worst of them. When he took over the squad, there already was the wiretap on Gondo. And they thought, they say, maybe that it was going to get better. Uh, But then Jenkins, of course, made it worse. So um, there are a lot of pieces that don't fit there. How Cluel got out of any trouble. They've never, you know, they've never said that he cooperated or something, but there's some missing pieces, but that's sort of how the investigation came to. They, they kept the wiretaps up throughout the summer and the winter. It seemed like they maybe had the GTTF got a, a sense that trouble was coming. Jenkins went on a paternity leave for several months and things quieted down, 
when he came up, they tricked them all into going to ID and they had a big sting there that day with SWAT and stuff there. But the commissioner didn't find out about this investigation until right before it. Uh, almost no one within BPD knew. Even they couldn't get records from the casino they wanted because they thought it would get back to BPD. And there's, of course, when Sean Souter, a Baltimore police detective, was going to testify uh, the day before his testimony to the grand jury, he was found dead. And we still don't know what happened with that. So there were still a lot of reasons to for them to keep this from BPD knowing about it. And, and then in terms of, you know, why there wasn't a response to this, where I think, as Boehner kind of stressed, you know, so the Internal Affairs Department wasn't involved in it. The local police department didn't know about it until they had to know about it for fear of leaks, as Baynard said. And so I think that kind of protection of it extended then to how they wanted to handle it publicly because they just wanted to sort of contain it. And that's sort of that concern about, you know, if you have initially seven officers since they have eight more, you have a dozen or so have been named since then as well as possibly being involved. It's really hard to start keep containing that. I mean, what's the definition of a few bad apples? Is it 30 to 60 in a department? Like how big does that have to be? And so that's what moved, I think, state-level folks to, like Senator, State Senator Bill Ferguson, to push for this commission. So um, I spoke to Senator Ferguson before the commission was enacted, and the commission was basically, I think the vision for it was maybe something like you might see in an old movie, like The Godfather 2. You bring in all the co-conspirators, they sit there and they talk, and you know this is all public. That didn't play out for a number of reasons. Um, I think a lot has to do with transparency, as we've already talked about. Um, there's a lot of police officers or former police on the um, commission. Um, transparency has been limited. And so it's kind of been the only response, but it's also been fairly unaccountable and non-transparent. It brings people in, they speak. Um, a lot of them, you know, for example, just recently, a former uh, commander of BPD, uh, of Baltimore Police Department, was interviewed. And the first half was them basically being like, how did you not know about this? You were in charge of these guys. How did you, you know, were you, what were the oversights, blah, blah, blah. But then the second half was like, oh, well, what would you have done different? Or how could we fix the department? So we're asking the same people that we think are involved to fix it. And we they want to take advice. And you also heard, which I think is just classic police investigating police, right? Of like, oh, you know, we understand that you were, you know, in the department for 30 years. Thank you for your service. Anyway, why is your department such a disaster? This kind of tension between never wanting to sort of push it hard enough, but also make sure not to upset anyone too much. And I think that has to do with, again, the, the, the homicide rate, again, the violence in the city and this idea that if you critique the police too much, if you push them too far, you're going to have, as, as they threatened after the uprising in 2015 to take a knee, that anything that might alienate the police is bad politically and allegedly bad for the city. And so there's also that thing of just not wanting to, even in this moment of national uprising against police violence, this real concern about uh, how far do we push the police? How mean are we? How mean are we to them? Um, and we see that with like these incremental reforms that are sort of trickling out now in the department. Baltimore kind of saw that over the past five years already. Now, one of the things in the book that I literally didn't know, like, so what is cool about the book uh, for listeners is that it takes you through like a play-by-play. You, you, There are all these stories that, you know, and the police are as wild or wilder than people even imagine. But you know, I know Ivan Bates because he ran for a state's attorney. I didn't know Ivan's involvement with this. Like, I just didn't know. Can you talk about why he appears as like a sort of a character in this story? Like, what is his role and, and why does that matter? Yeah, so he was, he's sort of the protagonist of the story. We wanted to write it kind of like a, a thriller, but a, an anti-racist, anti-fascist sort of 
thriller instead of all of the right wing stuff that's often brought in there. And as reporters, our way into criminal justice had always been through defense attorneys. They would talk to us and police and stuff wouldn't talk to us. So we knew about the cases from defense attorneys. And Ivan had this, we wanted to start with the case of Ori Stevenson because it goes all the way to the end when he testifies against them. And he was a person that they robbed more than almost $200,000 from. They stole two kilos of cocaine from. They tried to break up his marriage. It was just this long. And Ivan was there, was his lawyer. But then when we started talking to him, we realized that Ivan had been trying to figure out and get people to listen to what Jenkins's MO was since 2010. And then in the period of our book, he had a slew of cases, five different cases piling up in the summer of 2016. That helped us narrow down. I mean, we could only write about they got a guy's car, they got his keys, they went in his house, they robbed him so many times. They did it so often. So it helped us narrow down some of the cases. Um, and it gave us a person for the reader to identify with a little bit. You know, and, and he was complicated because he had also defended Alicia White in the Freddie Gray case, one of the police officers. And he was really reviled for that. And he, he really felt that. And so he was sort of struggling with himself at the moment we started talking to him. And he had been struggling with this case. And he had just, when we started talking to him, he had also just lost in his race for state's attorney, which is great when you're writing about someone because, you know, the loser's locker room is where people are questioning themselves. The winner's locker room, you get nothing about except how great they are. Uh, you know, but the losers are really willing to question themselves. So he was, he wanted to look back through all this and was willing to give us the time and the sort of uh, constant cause of what were you doing on this date and getting him to check his phone and what pictures do you have and what sort of, so he, you know, he may be a really good lawyer and Jenkins may have been a really bad cop, but the book isn't about exceptions. The book is really about, he stands in for the roles that a defense attorneys sort of play in, in trying to hold dirty cop to account. And, and the GTTF is really a, an extension, a logical extension of policing and the secrecy and the power and stuff we give. But these, these human individuals give people a way to want to follow it sort of more passionately than an issues paper or something like that. And then, you know, once he ran, we were able to then follow the, the public defenders and have this new sort of part of it who were doing the frontline work of going over all those cases that Brandon was talking about. 10,000 cases that were compromised. That wasn't his job anymore. And so it gave us a nice uh, transition into the next stage of the book. And I just add that, you know, we really liked the idea of kind of inverting all your expectations for a crime story. So here are the cops or the robbers. That's where everyone starts, right? And during the trial for two of the officers, the often people that were alleged to be drug dealers were presented as people victimized. We like the idea of having them putting the defense attorney in a sort of investigator role. And then we also liked, even with the title, I Got a Monster, which refers to cops saying, um, what, what Jenkins would say when he had a drug dealer he wanted to rob. We like the idea of sort of using the monster language and flipping it around to be about the police and kind of countering a lot of the language that we especially saw with something like the, the killing of uh, Michael Brown, where he was sort of this superhuman, but also subhuman, this sort of racist monster language, sort of throw all of that at the police and then push the defense attorneys who are often kind of framed as like opportunistic or slimy a lot of the time, although they shouldn't be seen that way as the kind of protagonists or pushing the conversation forward. 
Now, you know, it's interesting. I remember when this happened, it was sort of big enough news in the city for a couple of days, and then it seemed to just blow over, which was shocking to me, actually. I was like, what is going on? Um, but now we're in this moment where, like, people are talking about the police again. And this, I think, is not even shocking. Like, people are like, wow, this is just an uncovering something that we knew to be true, which, like, you already knew going in, right? So there's this question about like what do we do about it and and I'm I am still interested and I you know you're close to you you know the city police department really well is like I haven't seen any of the city legislators come out with like a bold plan to change BPD or like I don't know you know I I think there's some aggressive people on the council who've asked a lot of questions so like I'm interested in what you re- do you think people are just even with the new council members do you think that they are just afraid of the police like is that like a uh, you know, I don't know. Like, what's what do you think that is? And then, what do we do in Baltimore, right? Like, what is the? I, I can't imagine that you think that this is. These are all the people. Like, I, I believe that you probably think this goes deeper. Yeah, and like the consent decree is a good start, but like as you said, the civil rights division was next door to this team and like didn't catch them. So like, what else isn't being caught? And I think nobody has faith in internal affairs. So like. So one part of like why the silence from the city leadership, which maintains itself today, and then like, what do we do? I keep going back to this, but I think that the police have done a really good job in the city, especially the Fraternal Order Police, the police union, in framing any criticism, any question of police as too far and as a reason why violence is happening. If you tell us how to do our job, they've obviously done this with the consent decree too, right? You know, if we, we, if we have to constitutionally police, we just can't police. We'll take our ball and go home. So I think there's that. And then with that, you have uh, a real concern of alienating them from a younger political class that's coming in with the exception of a few. And the, the older folks are so ingrained in this idea that like, these are exceptions, these officers, I said, like, but how many bad apples are, do you have to have before it doesn't seem like it's bad apples anymore? And yeah, it's ongoing. I definitely think it includes more people. They don't want to offend the police department. They don't want to then be seen as soft on crime. And somehow in this weird upside down, really messed up city because of a lot of dysfunction and a really uh, under audited, under, uh, you know, looked at police department, any criticism of police, including these like egregious examples becomes too much because, you know, even in the most recent mayoral election, everyone was arguing for going out and getting guns off the street. And that's exactly what enabled these officers in the first place. So we can't extract the sort of plainclothes strategy, which is to go into communities, black communities, throw anyone and everyone against the wall, search them, pull drugs out, do all these things. If they have drugs, and I'm with the task force, steal the drugs, arrest them for the gun. We can't separate that from any kind of reform. And so we just sort of eddy over and over again. And everyone just keeps saying, we need to go after guns. We need to go after guns. And this is exactly what happens when you have this sort of gun-obsessed, gun-focused kind of seizure. And so that strategy is sort of just keeps persisting in the city, mixed with um, maybe some things Boehner could unpack more about like how police are protected, how it's a state agency, the law enforcement officers, bill of rights, and those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, one of the crazy things that other places are seeing right now, I think the reason why we're glad the book is out now is because Baltimore had this uprising five years ago and there's been this summer of uprisings this year and we're seeing exactly the same things happening in all of these other cities where the police leverage violence against communities. So they say, look, you you had a protest against us and now crime is rising. Oh, you're telling us to follow the Fourth Amendment. Now crime is rising. You see people like Alec McGillis writing stories that are saying, oh, well, it's Crime's rising because police are slowing down and it gives them all of the credit for rising and falling crime. And so it's 
why we don't hear city officials say more is the same reason we don't hear anyone who's subject to a protection racket complain about the people who run the protection racket because you're afraid they're going to break your knees in some way or another. You know, the, the Thanksgiving after Baltimore's uprising, after the death of Freddie Gray, there, there, you know, when there had been thousands of people in the street, there was a protest that uh, the day before Thanksgiving, and you were there, DeRay, and I was there, and we were standing there, and there were maybe 15 people. You said, what happened? Why? Where did all the people go? And what we found in reporting this book is that the Gun Trace Task Force and other BPD uh, plainclothes squads functioned as a counterinsurgency. That July, when they brought a new commissioner in, they said, the riots are over, uh, do what it takes to get the violence down. And they leveraged that violence against the city. And, and what we saw is that every time, you know, Jenkins, when there was a supposed slowdown, the Gun Trace Task Force or his uh, special enforcement section squad would make as many as 50 unconstitutional stops a night. They called them door pops. Anytime they'd see a group of black men standing together, they'd speed up in their car, slam on the brakes, pop open the door, and whoever ran, they'd chase them, uh, tackle them. And if they had drugs, they'd steal the drugs. If they had a gun, they'd arrest them. But all of those stolen drugs had consequences on the streets. One guy named Davon Robinson, they stole $10,000 from him as, and they arrested him. And he was murdered over a debt when he was coming from uh, his court date. So someone knew he had court. He'd been hiding out, followed him and killed him over uh, a debt he couldn't pay when they had stolen $10,000. So they were actually escalating the violence while then using the violence to increase their power. You can't question us. You need us to stop this violence. And so that makes it really hard to do anything with policing. I mean, I think part of what these guys show is the limits of all of the Obama era reforms. And they really articulate why people want to defund police and move the, those resources out of police departments as a whole, rather than thinking body cams or something are going to end up being helpful. One of the things we saw is that they used cameras of all sorts to manipulate evidence and to uh, frame people and to justify their thefts. We just came across a, a body cam video where someone that they, we knew they broke his jaw, they're forcing him to say that he fell and that he didn't do anything and they had told him they were gonna let him go. It really points out a lot of the limits of reform and shows why I don't see how BPD could be reformed or many police departments that we're seeing, uh, the stuff in Mount Vernon, New York, the stuff with the LA Sheriff's Department. Like, well, how do you how do you reform that? Yeah, so my, my push would be that, you know, as somebody who like grew up in Baltimore, I still live in Baltimore, my family's in Baltimore, is that you know, like I know that, and when we look at national data, the defund conversation is really popular on the internet. It is not popular in the country, right? And even when we look at national uh, favorability of the police, the police are no less popular today than they were before, right? The protesters are more popular, but like people still rock with the police. It's not, the police did not lose popularity. Police unions are really unpopular, interestingly, but like the police are not. I say that to say like, how do you respond to people who say like, crime is increasing in the city, right? Or like crime is not increasing actually, but like murders are increasing and shootings increasing. Violent crime as a, as a group is not actually increasing across the country. But like in Baltimore, people do feel, you know, you know those summers where it was like 30 people killed in 30 days. Or de like we've all survived that in the city. So when people hear the end of policing or defund in Baltimore, there are a lot of people, black people, forget the white people. There are a lot of black people who are like, I don't know, right? Because like this is already bad and the police at their worst at least keep us at like an equilibrium. What do you say to that? Or like, how do you help people like bridge that gap? I mean, that's a really good uh, 
point. And I mean, I, I remember after the uprising, I went to the, the there was weekly um, sort of public safety meetings all across the city. I was really intrigued to see what those played out like. And they made something that I had seen and understood from people in my family. Again, I'm a white kid from Baltimore, from Highland Town, a sort of notoriously white and racist neighborhood. But I was hearing the same thing, which is there's this idea that like, we just want to be able to walk down the street. Like my grandmother would say, we're at the grocery store and not think I'm get hit in the head with a pipe or something, you know, and get robbed. And so how do you sort of square that with the concerns with police is really hard. You know, I'm not certainly not going to tell the black Baltimoreans how to feel, but what I can kind of push against is that what we've seen is that increasing police budgets and giving them more sort of a longer leash and more access to more sort of gear and equipment and all hasn't worked. I mean, this city's been paying for the police department for almost a half a billion dollars for a long, long time. Homicide rate is not rising or shrinking depending on how much we're spending. So we have to sort of look at that. And then and specifically what I push against was plain clothes, because I do think that while police and police departments think of plain clothes as the sort of solution, you know, the guys in vests and cargo pants that are running through black neighborhoods um, looking for drugs, looking for guns, proactive policing, they're finding crime. Those things, I think, generally are not what people like, including in uh, black communities, because it's just they show up, the jump out boys show up and they cause chaos. So and I think that that in Baltimore, what people need to understand because everything's so opaque, you know, it's so hard to get into the center of what the strategy is. The police department, when they're giving more people, more, more money, more energy into policing, that's who they're giving it to. They're giving it to guys like the task force. They're not putting it in uniform cops, beat cops and things like that, or homicide detectives. We have a wretched uh, clearance rate in this city. So that would be my start maybe would be like to think that when what you say you want in your community or what we all say we want our community, if you believe that police have any effect on public safety. I personally don't, but I, again, I'm not going to tell uh, black folks that are dealing with this in a way I'm not what to do. But if you do believe in that, there's still this disconnect between what you say and what police put in your community. They mainly put guys like Wayne Jenkins in your community to jump out on people and arrest them for a lot of bogus stuff. And so I think if we start there, you understand this idea that plainclothes police are sort of causing chaos and creating crime just by causing chaos, they create crime. And then if you have a gun trace task force kind of officers, which we kind of agree is not just these seven guys or these 15 that have been charged, then there's a lot of guys with a lot of freedom to rob you. And we already saw what happened when this was done because that's what the task force is about. So that's kind of my pushback on that a little bit is we really, maybe my compromise is like, let's look at plain clothes and think of what police strategy means versus in the same way that you say, I, uh, you know, a white, you know, lefty guy like me yells about defund, and then it means something very different. But when the police talk about like crime fighting, I don't think it's what most um, people in the community actually think of a crime. But I don't think they think of plainclothes guys driving around looking for trouble. Uh, the only other part I'd add to that, I, I think that's exactly right. The plainclothes, their footing is to wage war on the citizens of a city and they bring violence rather than solving violence. They're not the ones who call when you have a problem. They're not the ones who try to investigate a homicide. So, you know, the, the problem, like Baltimore Police Department has $500 million a year budget. And that's not working. And every year when it doesn't work, when we have over 300, I mean, this last week has been just horrendously violent. And clearly that the money that we're giving isn't working where it is. So where else could we give that money? We just wrote a thing for The Intercept uh, looking at safe streets here and at the violence interrupters and at that model of trying to deal with violence and the way that BPD and specifically the Gun Trace Task Force was targeting them, um, and, and which was another way of increasing violence, increasing their power, discrediting their rivals for that kind of power. 
when Sean Suter, the, the uh, homicide detective who had worked with Wayne Jenkins, had been involved in a situation where they caused a death, uh, when he was shot in the head right before he was going to testify, we offered a $250,000 reward for his death as a city. If we offered that for every one of the murders that we have in the city, we'd still only come up with, if my math is right, $75 million. That's a fragment of BPD's budget. And I'm pretty sure people would be flipping on people uh, in a heartbeat here if they could get 250, and it would raise our, our, would spread that money all around the city, raise quality of living. So it seems to me that it's a failure of our imaginations and a failure of looking, as Brandon was saying, at what the police are actually doing and asking them, how are you in fact decreasing crime or keeping me safe? And they're gonna present us with the worst case scenarios, but places like Safe Streets might show us uh, better kinds of, and, and various peer violence and other sorts of approaches with better scenarios of how we might be able to help ourselves in that way. Brandon, you talked about a low clearance rate. Can you help people understand what that means and what does it mean to actually clear a crime? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, what I mean by a low clearance rate is sort of a, a, a homicide in the city that they've closed and they can close it for a lot of reasons. Um, it doesn't have to be that someone was charged with it and then went through the system and was found guilty. Um, oftentimes in Baltimore, we see this, that they're putting homicides on um, dead people. So someone gets killed and then they say, oh, that guy got killed recently. He actually did this other homicide and they clear it that way. And so that besides it being, it's hovered between like 30 and 40%, which, you know, if you think about it that way, it means you have more than a one in two chance of committing a murder in the city and getting away with it. So there's that. And then how that, that clearance rate just is able to be, there's a lot of ways they can fudge that math. I mean, I can say there's, there's specifically murders that I, I've done some reporting about that were then put on someone. And I know, no one I knew was saying that person who, who was charged with that homicide did it. And oftentimes these are people who were later killed. So there's sort of these ways that the math is fudged. And then there's sort of this uh, argument that when you don't solve homicides, you create more violence because people feel the need to retaliate. And there's a book called Ghetto Side that, um, it's kind of people on both sides of this often reference, so uh, maybe it's a good st- place to start. But the argument there is basically that people are going to take violence in their own hands when there's no retribution through like proper conventional legal means. And so that's the big thing is you have a, a city that every time there's a murder, it's argued that the police need more money to solve it. I mean, the Fraternal Order of Police in Baltimore sort of politicizes these bursts in crime and they sort of say, hey, look, X amount of murders in the past week. What are we doing about it? This police department's a mess. And then it's like, it could be, yeah, but like, so you want more money. But as Maynard already said, you're already spending you know, 500, 550 million a year. So there's that tension too. So they politicize the homicides. I mean, the other thing I should have thrown in there too is that clearance rate, that concern about homicides is politicized by everybody. Those homicides generally don't affect the bourgeoisie of the city or even sort of, uh, basically like white white guys like me that don't, you know, I ran in a small apartment or whatever. I don't have any money, but like, I'm not affected by that. And so it's really politicized in that way too, that it's the people that get the most upset about it are often people the least affected by it. We consider y'all friends of the pie. Can't wait to have you back. I would love to come back. Thanks so yeah. much for having us. It's always great to talk with you. And, and it's crazy to be on the other end, uh, <laughs> getting interviewed by you is kind of great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Cricket Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, DR Ballinger, and Samuel Shinyangwe, and our special contributor, Janetta Elzey.
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.